So in the reading corner today, we've got a magical treat in store for us because I'm joined by Tamsin Merchant and we're going to be talking about her two wonderfully inventive books, The Hat Makers and The Map Makers. These are stories of hats and maps and wild magic and villainy and alchemy. And I can't wait to get going. Uh, it's the first time you've been in the Reading Corner, Tamsin, and I'm so pleased to have you here. I think we probably have a lot in common. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for having me. And um, your clear love of books definitely tells me we already have something very big in common. <laughs> what it would be really nice to do right at the outset is to give our listeners who may not yet have read The Hatmakers mm. uh, just a brief setup of what the story is about. It's quite a sprawling world. So I'll tell you that our lead character is Cordelia Hatmaker. She's an 11-year-old girl who lives in London in Hatmaker House. And her family create magical hats for the king, for the royal family. And also they have a magical hat shop where they sell their hats um, to people. And you can go and you can get a hat for anything that you like, like a dancing hat or a confidence bonnet or any of those things. So she sells magical hats. And at the beginning of the story, her father, Prospero Hatmaker, is lost at sea in a shipwreck. And she starts to think that as different maker families around London, there are five maker families, as the different maker families start to have their houses broken into and dangerous ingredients stolen, Cordelia starts to think that there might be some kind of conspiracy afoot and she decides to try and find out what it is. And uh, in terms of map makers, which is the second book, mm. this is going to lead her closer to finding out what happened to her father. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. Great. But before we get there, I want to talk about this wonderful hat making activity you must have had great joy in writing about these maker families. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It was so fun the way it kind of, the way the idea came about. So the actual idea came to me in a dream. I'm an actor as well, and I was filming a TV show and the costume designer was talking about this special hat maker who had to create a special hat to fit one of the character's who has horns in the show. It's like a sort of Victorian steampunk fantasy show called Carnival Row. And that night I had a dream about a family of hat makers who, in London who make magical hats and needing ingredients from different places to go on the hats. Mm. Um, and so from there, I kind of wove in the idea of collecting ingredients and that magic is always found in nature. So this is sort of tribute and a, and a kind of love of plants and, and creatures and um, everything in the natural world, really. So when people write about characters or some people write about characters, they talk about, you know, putting the shoes on the character and then they feel they know what that character's like. Mm. I guess you could say the same for a hat, you know, that <laughs> it kind of creates character. Yes, I think a hat does tell you a lot about what people kind of how they see themselves, how they want to be seen as well. People say they've got different hats 
on for different jobs or roles that they need to fulfill in their life. So I think hats are quite magical. And I do think that, you know, if you put on a red beret, I think you'd feel a certain way. And if you put on a, you know, a gray fedora, I think you feel a certain way or a big straw hat, you know, makes you feel like you want to go on holiday. But of course, we're talking about magical hats and you mentioned ingredients there. Tell us about some of the hats that appear in this book. We've got, I think one of my favourites actually is the low profile hat. In the map makers, yeah, there's a low profile hat that stops you from being noticed, which for the for the hat makers and the map makers, I think, you know, what we're used to seeing in the world of Georgian London particularly was quite a big fashion flare kind of flamboyancy. And so a low profile hat is very much the opposite of that. If you look up Georgian hat satire, there are some absolutely incredible hats that are kind of based on the fashions of the time, but are sort of gravity defying, almost Escher-like hats So, yeah, actually inventing a low profile hat was quite a palate cleanser because it was a very different kind of thing that was needed. Very different ingredients. What ingredients did we have for that hat? The ingredients of a low profile hat are a plain bonnet made from torpid straw, some grey umbrella bird feathers and an insipid ribbon. Mm. And that means that the person wearing it will become very, very difficult to notice. So it's almost like a hat version of an invisibility cloak, but you put it on your head. You're kind of hidden in plain sight. Yes, exactly. Just sort of so uninteresting that no one really looks at you twice, which would be quite a useful hat, I think, possibly to do some dark deeds with. Mm, bit scary maybe Mm. tell us about your favorite hat in the book which one did you most enjoy inventing I really enjoyed inventing Sir Hugo Gashford's hat that Cordelia makes because in the the first book in the hat makers she's not meant to be making hats she's too young she doesn't know all the rules and there are some quite sort of alchemical kind of balancing rules that you need to obey if you're going to make hats magical hats because otherwise um as we see things can go quite wrong (laughs) and I really enjoyed Cordelia making that hat because it was a very unwise move and it was fun kind of her enthusiasm and Sir Hugo's enthusiasm to have a really fancy cool hat this was quite infectious so that was really fun to kind of add a hat on a hat almost wonderful and you talked about the natural world and these ingredients and it's one of the joys of reading your book the sort of invented ingredients which you know jump out at us because they've always got the capital letters and you've got your nice um catalogue at the back which explains what some of the ingredients are does this come from a love of plants and gardening or I mean it's so delightful that it feels like it's part of you somehow yeah I definitely I've loved gardens and plants and going roaming around in the wilderness forever and I I really enjoy actually medicinal plants and medicinal herbs and kind of seeing what amazing properties they have and I really wanted to 
introduce that to the book and to children without kind of being very forceful about it. I wanted to kind of show the joy and share the joy without being very prescriptive with it. Just joy and love of plants and growing things. Mm. You've actually been to the Physic Garden today, haven't you? you were yes, the Chelsea Physic Garden. I went for the first time today and there's something really magic about that and about the people that collected seeds and brought them to the Physic Garden and the amazing glass houses they've got where you sort of step into a jungly corridor of plants. It's amazing. Amazing. And did you discover anything that could be an ingredient in a forthcoming book. Did you discover anything new while you were there? I discovered an amazing smelling plant that was really sweet and it smelled like honey in the air, which was really cool. I think I'll definitely put that in in another book. We've talked a little bit about hats and ingredients and and how these ingredients make the magic in the hats. I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about these five maker families. So we have the five maker families who have royal decrees from the king to be allowed to make magical clothes. So there are the hat makers, the boot makers, the glove makers, the cloak makers and the watchmakers. And they all had this guild hall that they shared in London up until about 30 years before the start of the hat makers when there was a great big falling out between all of the families. So the glove makers and the boot makers and the cloak makers and watchmakers and hat makers don't talk to each other anymore. And when they do, they're exceptionally rude to each other. Particularly, there's a particular hatred between the hat makers and the boot makers. Except Cordelia has a friend. Yes. Cordelia's secret friend at the beginning of the hat makers is Goose Bootmaker, the youngest bootmaker. They're sort of these two young children in, in families and they're not quite yet allowed to be part of what the families do. And so they found each other and they they love each other very much. <laughs> Well, there is hope for these maker families that they yes. might one day get reunited. Yes. Now, glove makers, really inventive way in which you have the glove makers. They come in pairs. <laughs> yeah, they do. The twins. <laughs> so we're going to hear a little bit from the map makers. Um, you're going to read a little bit of us, and it involves the twins Mm. from the glove makers maybe we could just set up that part of the story how do we come to this episode well Cordelia and Goose and their friend Sam have been going to the guild hall which has been abandoned by all the grown-ups and found that the guild hall is this amazing kind of treasure trove of dusty treasures that they've um, just sort of decided that they'll play and make their own inventions in but someone else couple of pairs of of punchy glove makers have come in and want the guild hall for themselves so this is a kind of example of the argument between the adults being perpetuated between the kids yeah this is that's how it starts and they are a bit bigger than Cordelia and Goose and they are definitely more violent it scared me a little bit <laughs> mm, yeah they're, they're rather unpleasant <laughs> So this bit starts when Cordelia and Goose 
have just been cornered. I think just run. The glove makers lunged for them. Cordelia ducked under eight grabbing arms, dragging Goose with her. They tore around the edge of the great chamber. If they could get to the door, a few steps further, a flash of acid yellow and a shriek of laughter, the glove maker girls had cut them off. You can't escape, they sang gleefully. Cordelia swerved away. Up the stairs, she cried, but Goose's hand was yanked from hers. No! The glove maker boys had him. They dragged him backwards, thrashing and flapping. Let him go! Cordelia charged after them. She'd barely taken a step when her feet left the ground. Put me down, she howled, kicking in midair, arms pinned to her sides. But the glovemaker girls just laughed, the little claws on the fingers of their gloves digging into her skin. The world went sideways, then the great dome of the Guildhall opened up beneath her feet like a highly decorated crater. Things only got more confusing as the blood rushed to her head. Goose was being dangled by his ankles too, getting redder faced by the second. Goose squealed as one of the boys sank a punch in his stomach. Stop it, Cordelia yelled, wriggling. Sweets showered from her pockets, raining onto the floor in a cascade of coloured paper. She's full of sweets. Shake her and see if there's any more. Cordelia's teeth clacked in her skull. Marzipan fancies and chunks of caramel hit her in the face as they fell. Things were getting very dark. Then, in a sudden miracle of blinding light, an avenging angel appeared at the top of the stairs, halo ablaze. Let him go, the angel commanded, descending from on high at an alarming speed. Cordelia hit the ground. Goose sprawled beside her. The glovemakers screamed. Startled, the fireflies fled to the safety of the dome, so Sam reached the bottom of the banister without her golden halo. There was a short pause as all parties assessed one another. It's just a kid! A glove maker exclaimed. There was a blur of tweed as the boys pelted for Sam, who darted back up the stairs. Run, Sam roared. I'll be fine. Cordelia dragged Goose to his feet before the glove maker girls could recover their scattered wits. Hatmaker and bootmaker raced across the great chamber. They dived through the velvet curtains into the dark entrance hall, fumbling to find the exit. Cordelia could hear the glove maker girls stomping through the shadows towards them. There was a sudden flood of sunlight as Goose wrenched open the door. Come on! They scrambled across the shabby square and down a narrow alley. The glovemaker girls stormed after them, closing in like thunderclouds. Up ahead, Cordelia spotted a glimpse of Bond Street. She felt hope blaze. Bond Street was teeming with people. It would be easy to shake off the glovemakers there. She and Goose burst out of the alley into the surging throng. The crowd was loud and rowdy, but Cordelia didn't care. The mass of jostling bodies swept them to safety up the street. What? What about Sam? Goose wheezed, looking around for her. She'll have escaped out of a window, Cordelia said. Let's go round the back of the guild hall and find her. She tried to shoulder through the bodies packed tight around them, but it was impossible. Here he comes, the condemned. A black wagon rolled slowly through the middle of the mob. The air soured, curdling into jeers. Cordelia's stomach dropped. The wagon loomed above her. A figure sat inside it, dressed in shadow. Cordelia could feel him. He had the dark pull of a planet. It was the man who had wrecked her family's ship and claimed with savage joy that the waves had taken her father. Whitloof.
That's an action-packed and (laughs) thrilling uh, episode there. (laughs) Two people that I want to talk about that are quite important, obviously the villain. But before we get there, this angel, Sam. Mm. We've said that there are these legal maker families, but there's a hint that Sam might belong to a lost maker family. Yes. Um, So Sam's name is Sam Lightfinger. But great aunt Petronella, who's Cordelia's great aunt and who claims to have been alive when Henry VIII was alive, even though that would make her about 300 years old. She, great aunt Petronella, tells Sam and Cordelia about how sometimes if a maker family had to go into hiding because their making had been banned by Henry VIII, they would change the the name, their surname slightly. And so there would be a clue in the surname. Mm-hmm. And so Light Finger, Great Aunt Petronella thinks, could be Light Bringer. People, you know, there's a history of people changing their names when things threaten them, you know, because, mm. you know, names sometimes give away who you are, where you come from. And there's a history of people changing their names to protect themselves. And it's often to do with, yeah, being deeply persecuted. and. I wanted there to be this sense of history of the makers being woven into British history or or world history. Um, And also a sense, I think Sam in different ways um, has these kind of facets that are the products of trauma. She was on the street when Cordelia first meets her and she's such a ray of sunshine. And I think that her essential nature is one of light. Mm. Um, So yeah, she's a really interesting interplay of, of dark things that have happened and the light that it, it, that is in her, in her heart. And indeed makes a really good contrast with the darkness of this other character mm. that appears at the end of that episode that you've read. He's the villain of the yes. piece. What do we know about him without giving too much away about the ending? What do we know about him at this point in the story? Well, if, if you've read The Hatmakers, you know that he tried to start a war between England and France because he's obsessed with making gold. Um, and he was the one responsible for all of the thievery going on in the first book. Um, so we know that and we know currently that he is condemned to death for his treachery um so that is what we know about Whitloof and talking of plants actually I found the name Whitloof in a seed catalogue many years ago and I thought it was a great name for a sort of pompous villain type person it's actually the name of a type of chicory and so I think probably most kids would dislike chicory because it's quite bitter Mm -hmm. so I think it was it works on many levels (laughs) Whitloof We haven't talked about maps. I can't believe we haven't talked about maps and why (laughs) the map makers, because we know Cordelia is part of this hat making family. We know that actually maps are not one of your five families either. They must be secret. Yes, they certainly are. And anyone who's not one of the, the five maker families we talked about earlier is not allowed and shouldn't be making according to the king. But as Cordelia does discover, there are some things that go above the heads of kings, some things that are more important, more deeply important. Indeed. And there's one more family uh, of makers that we haven't mentioned because yes. they're banished. 
Yes. And they're the cane makers. And actually, there's a character who is a cane maker who is going to be quite instrumental in this story. And again, what are you able to tell us about that set of makers and about Delia? Um, so Delilah Canemaker, she was in the first book as Miss Stairbottom, the governess, and was also Delilah was Whitloof's sidekick who he was using. So the cane makers were banished by the king and thrown in a, a workhouse and all of the other makers thought that all of the cane makers had died, but Delilah is the one surviving cane maker. And she, at the beginning of the map makers, is in prison for being a traitor alongside Whitloof. And I really wanted to have a redemption arc for Delilah cane maker because I felt like she was a victim of the circumstances. She was a child when her father did something uh, made some dangerous weapons that um, that weren't allowed, and so that's why they were banished. Um, but but Delilah was a child and was just a victim of that. So I really wanted her to have a redemption arc. Again, I don't think we're giving too much of the plot away, but I think she says a couple of things that she really encapsulates what the big themes are. She says. I am a maker. It's far greater to create things than to destroy them. That's a key aspect to this story. Yeah. And I think that now more than ever, I think in our world, that's quite fragile and needs to be um, looked after for the greater kind of good of humankind and and nature together. I think creating things together and laying aside kind of personal gain is really, really noble and essential, really, for our souls as well as for our planet. It's mm. lovely that she's the one to put it out there like mm. that. We won't say how she gets to that point of being redeemed, but it is <laughs> nice that uh, we have that in there. Yeah. Now, you're obviously a really creative person um I don't know if you're a maker yourself if you actually do make things I sort of do but I'm not very good at it but there is actually I will say a really tremendous joy in not being very good and doing something I did oil painting for a while and really really bad oil paintings like I painted pictures of sheep that look like dinosaurs but that gave me a lot of joy because it kind of opens your brain up and your mind I think I've struggled with perfection and perfectionism and I really do think that that's it kind of throws cold water on anything and so I really enjoy doing things that I'm not good at and I'm I think I'm I really enjoy writing about making possibly because I can't really create things myself and I admire people who do massively and also the maker's mindset is really key if you make something with a good intention it has good goodness and good intentions within it um so yeah that's also mm. something I tried to get across yeah fabulous <laughs> one of the things that I can really see a lot of our listeners are teachers or working directly with children and young people mm. and reading your books it really made me think but well, what a fantastic opportunity to launch into various creative projects I wonder if you could think of anything that you would get children to do having read the books what kind of things might they enjoy doing I think the idea of making your own 
thing that is meaningful to you. So making your own hat or making your own map to a magical place. Or you could kind of combine them and you could make a hat with magical ingredients. And then you could say, well, which one of these ingredients is the rarest? And now the next part of the project is making a map to lead to where you'd find that ingredient in the wild. And I also feel like sometimes, you know, especially when I was writing the hat makers, I would put on certain hats and say, well, this is my determination hat for today if I was having a difficult day. And I think possibly using using the idea of a hat that gives you certain powers or helps you feel certain things is also quite an interesting thing. That might be more sort of psychology, though. Also, you just put on a, an invisible dancing hat and uh, dance <laughs> dance around. That's what I'm going to be doing when we finish recording. <laughs> I shall put on my invisible dancing hat. Uh, people will wonder what on earth I'm doing and I won't forget. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Tams, and you've given us a real sight, insight into your um, hat maker and map maker stories and some of the ideas behind them as well so thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me it's been lovely talking thank you in the reading corner is presented by nikki gamble and produced by alison hughes this episode is generously sponsored by puffin children's books if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review if you would like to find out about other events and courses visit justimagine.co.uk Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.